0: leaflet with the passage there, it'd be great to have those open as we work our way through this passage. Okay, now let me begin, Um, have you ever bought something that you thought you just had to have, it was impossible for you not to have this thing? Was it a groovy shirt, (laughs) you know, a a particular pair of shoes, a racing bike, What, what was it? For me, it was my at home, if you've looked down, gone to our front door and looked down our hallway, you will see two quite distinctive reading chairs there by our fireplace. For me, that was the thing I couldn't not have. Um, I wanted a chair I could comfortably sit in for hours and just lose myself in a book by the fire. And I, I went shopping. I thought I'd found another chair that would fit the bill. The saleswoman said, no, you don't want that one. You want that one, that one over there. I sat in it. Oh, it was just, it was like someone was hugging me. This is the Hans Wegner Papa Bear chair, right? And um, I was sold, so, and because I wanted the Shazam factor, I didn't go for the gray or dark blue that they had. I ordered it in avocado green, oh yeah, in Danish wool. Um, how could I not believe that that chair was exactly what I needed? I absolutely needed that. Now. Who cares about a chair, right? Let's not make an idol out of a chair. But you understand the point. You probably can think of something you've acquired that you you just thought you'd be crazy not to have. Michelle, okay. If you had to stand up right now and just mount the case for why you had to have that purple electric bike that you have, you could do it, couldn't you? Absolutely, there you are. So There you go, okay. Now, I want you to apply this logic to Jesus. Why you cannot not believe. Why you must believe, why you'd be crazy not to, all right? After I had started in my own life listening to things explained at youth group, I realized, not only was it right and good to believe in Jesus, I would be absolutely stupid not to. I couldn't not believe. The choice in one way was taken away from me once I realized this. I mean, he was the reason that people at church were so different, why they loved one another, why they exhibited joy, why they had a confident trust, come what may, and then I realized also no one else had loved me like the Lord had done in sending his own son to die for me so that I wouldn't have to go to hell but have eternal life. This was a gift I would be stupid to refuse and it would be the height of rudeness as well. I mean, what would I be saying if I was refusing it? Oh, I, I don't value that, um, what you've done for me. What would I be saying? Oh, Actually, I, I'd prefer to pay for my sins myself, thank you very much. I mean, that would be the dumbest thing in the world. Um, once I realized that, I thought, I, I can't not believe. In today's passage, as we make our way towards the cross, the fault lines are getting wider between those who believe and those who don't. And the big point of tension in the passage is why won't the Jews as a whole believe in Jesus? Why why won't they do it? Look at verse 37 in the middle of the chapter. The staggering statement, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not, not could not, they would not believe in him. Now these are the people who for centuries had been looking forward to God sending them a Messiah. And for centuries, through the prophets, God had told them what would happen when the Messiah came, the signs that would make them realize that he was him. And yet, when he did come, and when he had done the signs, they were told that the Messiah would do, they don't believe. In fact, they won't believe. And you read that, and it boggles your mind. Um, I knew a lot of Jewish people at University, uh, New South Wales University, University of New South Wales in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, where Jewish people tend to live. Jewish guys do law, Jewish girls do psychology, I did psychology, I knew quite a few. But none of them showed any interest in listening and finding out about Jesus. Either they didn't believe at all, or they were so strictly religious that they wouldn't talk about God with a non-Jew like me. They just wouldn't engage. They wouldn't listen. Now I've, d- brought, I've painted a broad brushstroke, so there will be, you know, there w- will be um, people who don't fit that. Type, But we I guess we all know people like that, people who won't listen, even when they know something of the signs and wonders that Jesus did. And we think, what is going on in their brains? Today we're going to explore this, and this is the end of Jesus' public ministry in this chapter. So we'll be exploring this as Jesus here presses the go button for the cross. So here's our structure today. Go, stop, go, and then basically why you'd be stupid not to believe. All right, so Jesus presses the go button for the cross. Last week, it was the waves of impact of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead which caused the Jewish leaders to press go for sending Jesus to the cross. This week, it's Jesus who presses go. In verse 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The time's arrived, it's here. He's not speaking about his resurrection when he he speaks of his glorification. We might think that he was speaking about that, but a few verses later he speaks about the hour as his hour of death. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He's talking about Good Friday. Crucifixion. According to Jesus, that is his hour of glory. And now he says, actually, it's arrived, the hour has come. Jesus is pressing the go button. Now, we might say, or ask, what triggers him to announce that he's pressing the go button? Well, it's the most odd thing you'd think. It's some Greeks, Gentiles, who are there at the temple who have come up at the Feast of Dedication one week before the Passover to worship. And they've heard about Jesus and they want to see him. And they speak to Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and Philip speaks to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go and speak to Jesus, because, and because Spiro and Sula Tula Vula want to see Jesus, now Jesus says, well, it's the time. I'm pressing the button, and you think, how does that work? Why is Greeks arriving and wanting to see him a trigger for the cross? And Jesus explains, a lesson. a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Oh, you know, we get the illustration. Jesus is that kernel of wheat who'll die. When he's buried, he'll be planted in the ground. Through his death, he will cause many to rise and live. How does that explain about the Greeks being the trigger for the cross? The question gets even more sharp when we hear Jesus struggling in himself and the Father answering. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. So what shall I ask the Father? Shall I ask him to save me? No. Glorify your name. And then comes something very rare, an audible answer from heaven. Very rare, how many times does God speak audibly to a large group of people from heaven? Well, there's Mount Sinai, fairly significant moment. Uh, there's Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry, fairly significant moment. there's Jesus on the mountain when he's transfigured, shown his heavenly glory another significant moment. And here when the Greeks come. Um, Obviously, this is a significant moment. But what's the significance? (laughs) And how is the cross Jesus' glory? Well, here's my best guess. We know that God's plan has always been to bring salvation to the world, not just to the Jewish people. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Not God so loved Israel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. My guess is that it's when the Greeks are now coming and wanting to see Jesus that Jesus thinks, well, now is the time to pay for the sins of the world. You buy something on buy now, pay later, the goods arrive. There does come the time when you have to pay. Jesus comes to be the savior of the world of all the world, Jews and Gentiles. And when the Gentiles begin coming to him, he thinks, now is the time when I have to pay. I have to pay to take away the world's sins. And I think that is why the cross is Jesus' glory. Not because of how he'll look up there, very unglorious, but because of what it's achieving. And in verses 31 and 32, Jesus outlines two glorious things that the cross achieves verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on the world. On the cross the world will be judged as Jesus himself bears God's judgment on our sin in our place. The world is getting judged in Jesus. Now is the time for judgment on the world. And so now the prince of this world will be given out, will be driven out. Jesus drives out Satan and we think, well, I thought Satan was alive and well in our world, we ought to ask, from where does Jesus drive out Satan? And the answer, I think, is from the heaven's courts. Um, Satan, we know from places like Job chapters one and two, had power to accuse even the righteous as being guilty of sin, but at the cross, Jesus takes away that power to accuse those for whom Jesus has died because their punishment has already been paid. You see, what more could an accuser say for those for whom Christ has died? Could he say they're guilty? No, Jesus says no, my righteous life counts for them. Can he say they deserve punishment? No, my death on the cross counts for them. I've paid the punishment. Accuser, you can no longer accuse, get out. He's driven out of heaven's courts, and therefore, secondly, because Satan, our accuser, has been driven out of heaven, secondly, verse 32, Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, all people, to myself. The price of redemption has been paid. You see, Jews and Greeks and Australians, we can now come in. So you see the application, therefore, Uh, it's in verse 36, and and that is, believe in him. (laughs) Jesus says, these are his last words to the Jewish crowds, believe in the light while you have the light so that you can become children of light. That's go, Jesus presses go. Next, stop. This was Jesus' last exhortation to the Jewish crowds, the end of his public ministry and yet, even though the Greeks seem keen to believe, even with this final exhortation, even after all the miraculous signs he performed in the presence of the Jews, the Jews as a whole still would not believe in him. Now that, to me, is almost unbelievable, <laughs> their unbelief. I mean, I know, I know they chose not to believe I know that people today choose not to, or they don't believe or won't believe, but you'd think, after seeing the signs that they did, they would believe, wouldn't wouldn't you think that? Occasionally, we'll hear someone saying, um, perhaps we ourselves say, if God wants me to believe, he should turn up right in front of me and do a miracle, and if he does that, then I'll believe. Well, of course, they may not, because when God did turn up and God did perform miraculous signs before the Jewish people, I didn't believe. How do we explain this? We look at John's explanation. It sounds, on first reading, that he's saying it's God's fault. Verse 38. It sounds, uh, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. It sounds like, because it was prophesied, it was predestined by God that they wouldn't believe. And then John says, for this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and their hearts. It sounds like God deliberately prevented the Jews believing. And then we're left with a question, you know, why is God so mean? But it's easy to misjudge God here and get him wrong. You can actually see The heart of God, in the last words from that quote from Isaiah chapter six, God is not mean, God's desire is to heal people through them turning to him. That's what God wants. So why then does he harden people's hearts? Well, it's because it's what we ask for. We sin against him and then God hands us over to the consequences of that Decision, we reject God and God then says, well, if you don't want me, I'll treat you responsibly. That's what happens. You read Romans 1. When we reject God and ignore him and say, I don't want you in my life, God gives us what we want and gives us over to that decision. He hardens our hearts. You could read through the story of the Pharaoh, of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, and numerous times we read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but that is only after Pharaoh himself hardened his own heart against God, first. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart, confirms him in the decision he's already made. Now this is a big thought for us to grapple with. But the quotes from Isaiah that John gives, they, they, they help us. The first comes from Isaiah 53, Lord, Who has believed our message? Isaiah 53, if you know the Bible, you'll know that this chapter, more than perhaps any other in the Old Testament, speaks most clearly of Jesus, the suffering servant, and what would happen when he bears our sin at the cross. It is so clearly about Jesus that, guess what? In Jewish synagogues around the world, it is left out of their lectionary readings today. It is just not, I mean it's there, it's in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, but in their set readings for synagogues around the world, they do not read Isaiah 53, because it so clearly is about Jesus. John says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, 700 years before He saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. And we know that Jesus' glory was the cross. Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him stricken by, uh, punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now that is God's heart. That is why he sent his son that we be healed of our sins and forgiven and given new life in Jesus. That is why the plan was unfurled to send his son. But the tragedy is that he foresaw that the Jews, they would not believe because they had already hardened their hearts against God. Lord, to whom, who has believed our message? They had been like this for centuries, in fact which comes out in the other quote, this time from Isaiah's own call to ministry in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah, if you read that chapter, he, he sees a vision of the Lord in heaven and he is so awestruck and blown away by this picture of the Lord. I mean, the, the, the train of God's robe fills the temple and then he's looking up and beyond that and beyond that. And he is so struck by his own sinfulness and the awesome majesty and holiness, the brilliance of God, that he calls out, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord, the King, the Lord Almighty. And then God provides a means for atonement, and then he's, he's sort of healed, and now he wants to be a servant of God. And he says, send me, send me. And then the Lord says, well, you're in for a hard, hard ministry because I'm going to send you to a people of hardened heart, who just do not want to hear. It was true of them that back then, although although that's the widespread view, there were, and there is a little glimmer of hope, this is now, we've had go, stop, now go question mark. There, there were those who did believe in secret, who pressed their own go button of sorts to believe in Jesus, although in secret. What of them? I mean, is it okay to be a secret believer? We think of secret believers of Jesus, um, people in the Islamic world or the Hindu world where to come out as a Christian, well, it could cost them their life. Uh, uh, wouldn't they be like the secret believer we see in the Old Testament? Naaman the Syrian in 2 Kings chapter five, you'll remember he, he goes to get healed of his leprosy in Elisha. Um, Elijah, Elijah? Elijah, Elijah, one of them. <laughs> Elisha, I think, no, Elijah, anyway, one of them, <laughs> heals him, heals him, and then after he's been healed, he asks for forgiveness, because when he's going back to Syria, he knows that he will have to go into the temple of his master and bow down to his master's God, and forgiveness is granted, he he's sort of saying I'll be a secret believer over there. Or like Nicodemus, a Pharisee who came to Jesus at night and appeared to be a secret believer. It's a very hard one. We have to put Naaman the Syrian against what Jesus is saying in Luke 9 that if anyone is ashamed of his words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes. It's like there's a greater one than Elijah or Elisha (laughs) who's turned up now. You can't be ashamed of him. And so in today's passage, John said the reason people were secret believers was out of fear of the Pharisees that they would be put out of the synagogue, like the blind man in chapter nine. And people were generally afraid because, and this isn't said positively, they loved human praise more than praise from God. So it's a question of whose praise we value more, God's or people's? And back in verse 25, we skipped over it, Jesus said it bluntly, anyone who loves his life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's a question of comparison. Which one do you love more? Okay, this life or eternal life? That is the challenge. The Jews as a whole loved this life, the praise of people more than eternity and praise from God. Which do we love more? When you're under the pump, which do you love more? Given the cost of living openly for Jesus, You have to have a very strong case to come out, don't you? And so here it is, and Jesus finishes with it. His last words, he cries out to the Jewish wider audience. His case for why we cannot not believe. I mean, the Greeks want to believe. The Jews as a whole don't. And so now he says, here's why you cannot not believe. And like me with my green chair or Michelle with her purple electric bike, the reasons will be both positive and negative. They'll be both the wonderful things about believing in him and negative, what you simply cannot, cannot afford not to. The positive reason is in verse 44, whoever believes in me doesn't believe in me only, but believes in the one who sent me. You believe in Jesus, he's saying, you believe in God. He says the one who looks at me, and the Greeks came to look at him, didn't he? didn't they? The one who looks at me sees the one who sent me. And so it is, when you come to Jesus and you hear about him, you're hearing about God the Father who sent him. And when you look at Jesus in the scriptures, you are seeing the very character and essence of God the Father. Sometimes, we need to see this because sometimes we can draw a wedge between the Son and the Father. We can think that It's like good cop, bad cop. Jesus is the good cop. The father is the bad cop. He's got the anger problem, right? It's not the case. Jesus perfectly reveals what the father is like. If we see Jesus, we see the father. Verse 46, Jesus came into the world as a light that no one who believes in him should stay in the darkness of ignorance and despair and depravity. He came to show us God, to bring us into God's light. Now, this has implication for people of other faiths. When we speak to people of other faiths, what it's saying for us is that we need to speak very positively about Jesus. Don't just say, oh, because they've got a strong faith, that's okay. Um, If they're not believing in Jesus, they are not believing in God who sent him. If they're not seeing Jesus clearly, they are not seeing God who sent him, but God sent Jesus so that people could see and believe. So when we encounter people from different faiths, what we must do is to speak really positively about Jesus. What do you love about the Lord Jesus? What is your favorite story that really strikes a chord with you? Share it with those of other faiths. Introduce them to Jesus. Okay, only Jesus reveals God. That's the positive reason. The negative reason as to why you'd be mad not to believe in Jesus is in verse 47. And Jesus says it, because anyone who rejects Jesus and his words face judgment. Not by Jesus. His words that he's spoken to them are enough to condemn them at the last day. And his logic's really simple. The words Jesus spoke weren't words that he himself made up. Everything he said was what the Father commanded him to say. Now, that means that if you reject Jesus' words, then whose words are you rejecting? You're rejecting the Father's words, words which are given, commands which are given, to lead you to eternal life. In other words, if you turn your back on the message, you turn your back on the messenger, and to turn your back on the messenger is to turn your back on the one who sent the messenger, God the Father, who sent Jesus, who gave us words so that we could have eternal life. Now that is ultimately why it is impossible for people from other religions who reject Jesus, it is impossible for them to truly be honoring God in their faith. Now, I am not saying that people from other religions are awful. I am not saying they are worse than us. I am not saying that we're better than them, okay? We are all sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Um, I'm not saying that they're insincere in their worship, though there are many, but there are many Christians who are insincere in their worship. But according to Jesus, if anyone turns their back on the one the Father sent, they turn their back on the true God, the Father who sent the Son. And so we come at the end to the hardest challenge we all face, which is also the easiest. And that is, whose praise do we live for and which life do we most love? Because you need to answer those questions if you're going to live for Christ. If you're gonna come out as a Christian and not be that secret believer. If you're gonna live your life fruitfully for God, you've got to answer these questions. Whose praise do you live for and which life do you most love? Whose praise do you live for? Do you live mostly for the praise of people or do you live mostly for the praise of God? Now my guess is that everyone here likes to be liked and we don't want to be that awkward thorn in someone's shoe, (laughs) okay, that awkward person in the uh, staff team. Well, you don't have to be an awkward person. You know, Jesus talked about loving people, right? (laughs) Having integrity. Actually, these are very, very important characteristics. But are you a secret believer or have you come out? Whose praise do you live for? The praise of your Father, the praise of the Son of Man, or praise of people? And which life do you love most? This life or the life to come? For a few of us, this question is very real because there's risk and there's cost. You know the cost, uh, or you fear it, in standing up for Jesus. You fear what you might lose if you admitted to your close friends or family or work colleagues or whatever, your faith in Christ. It can seem the hardest challenge we face, but I, I just wanna mount the case. Honestly, honestly, and these are the last words Jesus speaks to the crowds. Given the reasons, positive and negative, why we cannot not believe, why you'd be stupid not to believe, okay? Why believing in Jesus is the obvious choice, why not believing him is suicidal. It really, it might seem the hardest choice, but it is the easiest choice, isn't it? It really is. I mean, how long does the praise of people last? You know, people in your work team, they, they might be gone next year. Uh, the people in your class at school, they might be gone. You know, Guess what, you leave high school. <laughs> um, you might not see them again. <laughs> um, how long does the praise of people last? And how meaningful is it next to the praise of the Father, the promise of eternal life? Had the bigger perspective, it is so worth it. Father in heaven, help us to live unashamedly for Christ it boggles our mind why people don't believe. Help us to be convinced in ourselves the great value of believing in Christ and why we simply cannot not believe, and therefore help us to be convinced, convicted, unashamed in living out our faith and help us to overcome our faith. We do not want to be like the Jews who wouldn't believe, who couldn't believe, and we do not want to be like those secret believers, Father, If any of us are that, give us courage and conviction in ourselves because we want to live for your praise, not for the praise of people, and we know that eternity is so much more valuable than life here and now. Give us courage in Jesus' name, amen.